0: Little Women, Chapter 4, Burdens Oh dear, how hard it does seem to take up our packs and go on, sighed Meg the morning after the party. I wish it was Christmas or New Year's all the time. Wouldn't it be fun? Asked, answered Joe, yawning dismally. We shouldn't enjoy ourselves half so much as we do now, but it does seem so nice to go to parties and to drive home and not work. I'm so fond of luxury, said Meg, trying to decide which of two shabby gowns was the least shabby. Everyone seemed rather out of sorts at breakfast and inclined to croak. Beth had a headache and lay on the sofa trying to comfort herself with a cat and three kittens. Amy was fretting because her lessons were not learned and she couldn't find her rubbers. Joe would whistle and make a great racket getting ready. Mrs. March was very busy trying to finish a letter, which must go at once, and Hannah had the grumps. There never was such a cross family, cried Joe, when she had upside an inkstand, broken both boot lacings, and sat on her hat. Beth, if you don't keep those horde cats down the cellar, I'll have them drowned, exclaimed Meg angrily as she tried to get rid of the kitten, who had scrambled up her back and stuck like a burr. Joe laughed, Meg scolded, Beth implored, and Amy wailed because she couldn't remember how much nine times twelve was. Girls, girls, do be quiet one minute. I must get this off in the early mail, cried Mrs. March. There was a momentary lull, broken by Hannah, who stalked in, laid two hot turnovers on the table, and stalked out again. Those turnovers were an institution, and the girls called them muffs, for they had no others. The hot pies were comforting to their hands on cold mornings. "'Cuddle your cats and get over your headache, Bethy. "'Goodbye, Marmee. "'We are a set of rascals this morning, "'but we'll come home regular angels. "'Now then, Meg.' And Joe tramped away, feeling that the pilgrims were not setting out as they ought to do. They always looked back before turning the corner, for their mother was always at the window to nod and smile and wave her hand to them. Somehow it seemed as if they couldn't have got through the day without that. For whatever their mood might be, the last glimpse of that motherly face was like sunshine.' If Marmee shook her fist instead of kissing her hand to us, it would serve us right. For more ungrateful wretches than we are never seen, cried Joe. Don't use such dreadful expressions, said Meg from the depths of her veil. I like good strong words that mean something, replied Joe, catching her hat as it took a leap off her head. Call yourself any names you like, but I am neither a rascal nor a wretch, and I don't choose to be called so. You're a blighted being and decidedly cross today because you can't sit in the lap of luxury all the time. Poor dear, just wait till I make my fortune and you shall revel in carriages and ice cream and high-heeled slippers. How ridiculous you are, Joe, but Meg laughed. Joe gave her sister an encouraging pat on the shoulder as they parted for the day, each going a different way. When Mr. March lost his property in trying to help an unfortunate friend, the two oldest girls begged to be allowed to do something toward their own support. Believing that they could not begin too early to cultivate energy, industry, and independence, their parents consented, and both fell to work with hearty goodwill. Margaret found a place as a nursery governess and felt rich with her small salary. She found poverty harder to bear than the others, because she could remember a time when home was beautiful, life full of ease and pleasure, and want of any kind unknown. She tried not to be discontented but it was natural that the young girl should long for pretty things, gay friends, and a happy life. At the King's, she daily saw all she wanted, for the children's older sisters were just out, and Meg caught frequent glimpses of dainty ball dresses and bouquets, and heard lively gossip of theater and parties. Poor Meg seldom complained, but a sense of injustice made her feel better sometimes. Joe happened to suit Aunt March, who was lame and needed an active person to wait on her. The childish childless old lady had offered to adopt one of the girls and was much offended because her offer was declined. Other friends told the marches that they had lost all chance of being remembered in the rich old lady's will, but the unworldly marches only said, we can't give up our girls for a dozen fortunes, rich or poor, we'll keep together and be happy. The old lady wouldn't speak to them for a time, but happening to meet Joe at a friend's, something in her comical face and blunt manners struck the old lady's fancy and she proposed to take her for a companion. This did not suit Joe at all, but she accepted the place since nothing better appeared, and to everyone's surprise, got on remarkably well with her irascible aunt relative. The real attraction was a library of fine books. The moment Aunt March took her nap or was busy with company, Joe hurried to this quiet place and devoured poetry, romance, history, travels, and pictures. Joe's ambition was to do something splendid. What it was, she had no idea as yet, and meanwhile found her greatest affliction in the fact that she couldn't read, run, and ride as much as she liked. Beth was too bashful to go to school. It had been tried, but she suffered so much it was given up, and she did her lessons at home with her father. Even when he went away, and her mother called to devote her skill and energy to the Soldiers' Aid Societies, Beth went faithfully on by herself and did the best she could. She helped Hannah keep home neat. She had her troubles as well as the others. She loved music dearly, tried hard to learn, and practiced away patiently at the jingling old piano. She sang like a lark about her work, was never too tired to play for Marmee and the girls, and day after day said hopefully to herself, I know I'll get my music sometime if I'm good. If anybody had asked Amy what the greatest trial of her life was, she would have answered at once, My nose, when she was a baby. Joe had accidentally dropped her into the coal hod, and Amy insisted that the fall had ruined her nose forever. It was not big or red. It was only rather flat, and all the pinching in the world could not give it an aristocratic point. Amy felt deeply the want of a Grecian nose and drew whole sheets of handsome ones to control her, console herself. Little Raphael, as her sisters called her, had a decided talent for drawing and she was never so happy as when copying flowers, designing fairies, or illustrating stories. One thing rather quenched her vanities. She had to wear her cousin's clothes. Amy suffered deeply at having to wear a red instead of a blue bonnet, unbecoming gowns, and fussy aprons that did not fit. Meg was Amy's confidant and monitor, and by some strange attraction of opposites, Joe was gentle Beth's. To Joe alone did the shy child tell her her thoughts, and over her big harem scarum sister, Beth unconsciously exercised more influence than anybody in the family. "'Has anyone—has anybody got anything to tell?' asked Meg, as they sat sewing together that evening. "'It's been such a dismal day. I'm dying for some amusement.' "'I had a queer time with Aunt today, and I got the best of it. I'll tell you about it,' began Joe. "'I was reading that everlasting Belsham's Essays.' Aunt soon drops off, and then I take out some nice book and read like fury until she wakes up. The minute her cap begins to bob, I whipped the Vicar of Wakefield out of my pocket and read away, with one eye on him and one on Aunt. I'd just gotten to where they all tumbled into the water when I forgot and laughed out loud. Aunt woke up, and being rather more good-natured after her nap, told me to read a bit. I did my best, and she liked it, though she only said, I don't understand what it's about. Go back and begin it. Did she say she liked it? asked Meg. Oh, bless you, no. But she let old Balsham rest, and when I ran back after my gloves this afternoon, there she was, so hard at the vicar, that she didn't hear me laugh. I don't envy her much, in spite of her money. Rich people have as many worries as poor ones, I think, added Joe. That reminds me, said Meg. It isn't funny, like Joe's story, but I thought a great deal about it as I came home. At the King's today, one of the children said that her oldest brother had done something dreadful and Papa had sent him away. I heard Mrs. King crying and Mr. King talking very loud. Grace and Ellen turned their faces when they passed me so I shouldn't see how red their eyes were. I didn't ask any questions, of course, but I felt so sorry for them and was rather glad I hadn't any wild brothers to do wicked things and disgrace them. I think being disgraced in school is a great deal tryinger than anything bad boys can do, said Amy, shaking her head. Susie Perkins came to school today with a red, lovely red carnelian rig. I wanted it dreadfully. Well, she drew a picture of mister Davis with a monstrous nose and a hump and the words Young ladies, my eyes are upon and my eye is upon you, coming out of his mouth in a balloon thing. We were laughing over it when all of a sudden his eye was on us and he ordered Susie to bring up her slate. She was paralyzed with fright, but she went and oh, what do you think he did? He took her by the ear, led her to the recitation platform and made her stand there half an hour holding the slate so everyone could see. Susie cried Quartz. I know she did. I didn't envy her then for I felt that millions of rings wouldn't have made me happy after that. I saw something that I liked this morning, and I meant to tell it at dinner, but I forgot, said Beth, putting Joe's topsy-turvy basket in order as she talked. When I went to get some oysters for Hannah, Mr. Lawrence was in the fish shop, but he didn't see me, for I kept behind a barrel, and he was busy with Mr. Cutter, the fish man. A poor woman came in with a pail and a mop, and asked Mr. Cutter if he would let her do some scrubbing for a bit of fish, because she hadn't any dinner for her children, and had been disappointed of a day's work. Mr. Cutter was in a hurry and said no rather crossly so she was going away looking hungry and sorry when Mr. Lawrence hooked up a big fish with the crooked end of his cane and held it out to her she was so glad and surprised she took it right in her arms and thanked him over and over he told her to go along and cook it and she hurried off so happy wasn't it good of him oh she did look so funny hugging the big slippery fish and hoping Mr. Lawrence's bed in heaven would be easy When they had laughed at Beth's story, they asked their mother for one. After a moment, she thought and said soberly, "'As I sat sat cutting out blue flannel jackets today at the rooms, "'I felt very anxious about father and thought how lonely and helpless we should be "'if anything happened to him. "'An old man came in with an order for some clothes. "'He sat down near me, and I began to talk to him, "'for he looked poor and tired and anxious. "'Have you sons in the army?' I asked." Yes, ma'am, I had four, but two were killed, one as a prisoner, and I'm going to the other, who is very sick in a Washington hospital, he answered quietly. You have done a great deal for your country, sir, I said, feeling respect now instead of pity. Not a mite more than I ought, ma'am. I'd go myself if I was any use. As I ain't, I give my boys. He spoke so cheerfully, looked so sincere, and seemed so glad to give his all that I was ashamed of myself. I'd given one man and thought too much, while he gave four without grudging them. I felt so rich, so happy thinking of my blessings, that I made him a nice bundle, gave him some money, and thanked him for the lesson he had taught me.